You're listening to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast, ASCP's journal come to life. Visit ASCP.com slash journal to read the articles and ASCP.com slash podcasts to listen to more author interviews. Welcome to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast. This is Kelly Ewing, your host. Today, we're going to be discussing the Senior Care Pharmacist Journal February 2023 issue feature article with the author. We have Dr. Watanabe with us. I'd like to welcome you to the podcast and thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much, Kelly. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. The feature article is titled The Critical Role of Pharmacists in Treating Older People and the Opioid Crisis. So welcome. Before we dive into the article, we would love to hear a little bit about what you do. Sure. I'm board certified as a geriatrics pharmacist, and also I'm a health economist and outcomes researcher who really thinks about using usually large real world data to inform uh, health policy. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the consequences of not using medications more effectively. That's really what I got into the field. And then what we can do about that. So what are some solutions to aid policy decision makers And this certainly applies to opioids, so better use of medications for pain. And alternatively, the the flip side is really what I got pulled into is was how do we use medications to treat opioid use disorder in this absolute epidemic that is really impacting even the life expectancy on the United States now. Mm, Yeah, such a timely topic. Can you share a little bit about what you do on the White House Committee? It was originally from the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which is a part of the White House Executive Office of the President. And there was a real goal of the administration to look at ways we can improve treatment for opioid use disorder. And one of those was really trying to examine how we've typically used methadone. So it's the most highly regulated medication in in the United States. And so when it's used for opioid use disorder, typically you have to use it within an opioid treatment program. They call those OTPs. There's, there was roughly 1,600 in the United States at least a few years ago. So it's, it was a medication that's known to be effective for treatment of opioid use disorder, but highly regulated, difficult for many to access. You need to, to effectively go to an, to an OTP very frequently, if, if not daily. And so there was interest by the White House to see, hey, if there was, by gathering a group of, of experts if uh, we could coordinate a workshop that included clinicians, folks with lived experience, policymakers, attorneys, researchers, to try to find ways that we could examine if there's better ways to use methadone and kind of piggybacking on some other work that had been done for medication for opioid use disorder to improve access. And one of those, from the very first meeting that the Office of National Drug Control Policy had with us was identifying as pharmacies and pharmacists as a piece of the solution. And I think that's interesting because, mm-hmm. you know, there, there was no, you know, it wasn't pharmacists that really generated that notion. It was, it was folks at the White House, which for the first time, the ONDCP is actually being led by a physician, Rahul Gupta. So there was, there was real interest that goes, you know, all the way up to the president and what, what can we do? And so convened a two day workshop to, to try to discuss what are some of the approaches that are done, what can we do differently, and what is being done. And it, it turns out there's actually some pretty bold initiatives, including those with pharmacists that that have been done both within the United States as well as internationally to mm-hmm. improve access to methadone to treat these patients. And, and to hear a lot of good stories about patients that had reclaimed their lives and their families and their occupations when they were able to get better treatment. Wow, that's, that's amazing. It was, it was extraordinary. 
Yeah. And, and I know in your article, you talk a little bit about Canada in, and what they're doing there and how, it, you know, we people are able to get access to methadone right in the pharmacies there in Canada. Have you guys been talking with or looking at the data from Canada? And are we looking to, you know, is that the vision someday of like what it would be like here? Or? I think so. So I think that there's been uh, some initiatives that were performed there that have been successful that uh, the, they spoke, well, at least a, a few of our group had reached out mm-hmm. and interfaced with them and the, the papers that they had published on on some important steps to do that. So I think we're looking at best practices in a lot of places, in both within Canada, in Australia. There's been some efforts to to put together better coordination between pharmacists and physicians, clinicians that are involved in this, as well as some bold steps that are being done within the United States. So there's there's some folks at Yale that have done some pioneering efforts to better coordinate with pharmacies, not only in dispensing some of these medications, but also providing guidance on better management as well, including some dosing and things like that. Okay. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's great to hear. So tell me a little bit about, you know, how did writing this article come to fruition? Sure. This was a real funneling of, of several areas I'm, I'm passionate about when it comes to older adult care, opioid use disorder, healthcare access, and COVID-19. So several years back, I consulted to a skilled nursing facility that was really trying to get a handle on its use of opioids and correlating that to to pain, which so basically they were interested in, okay, well, what are we doing to to treat pain mm-hmm. and or, and what was the use of, of the opioids? My interest was actually seeing, okay, well, for the pain management that was being done, how was that actually turning out in terms of the the pain management that was being analyzed. And it turns out actually a lot of it was not. So part of the, that effort was really looking at how we could better measure pain scores to their opioids used. Oh. And then surprisingly, I think that that's not done probably nearly enough or, or when yeah. it's done, it's not done systematically enough mm-hmm. that we can really ascertain is the usage of opioids really needed or effective mm-hmm. based on what we're seeing in, in uh, the pain scores. At the same time, I was part of a federal grant that received funding to train nurses by pharmacists on providing opioid use disorder treatment so that uh, oh, wow. these same kind of medications, buprenorphine, there was a real interest in what they call that uh, at times like academic detailing or detailing by pharmacists to get pharmacists to train other healthcare workers on effective use of medications for opioid disorder. At the same time, I was using some national data with, with colleagues to examine the increased risk in hospitalization for patients on, uh, they call that triple threat, opioids, muscle relaxants, and benzodiazepines. Yeah. So we looked to see if patients that were on opioids were at elevated risk for, for hospitalizations as well as emergency department visits and seeing if there was an incremental increase in worsening risk for patients that were on muscle relaxants and benzos. And that's what we saw and certainly in a troubling way mm. that uh, opioids can be, that use can be compounded by other medications in terms of potential harm. And then we we also looked at using some data from some federal agencies to see that what was the current access to opioid use disorder medications and based on the number of opioid treatment programs. And then we're interested in saying, okay, well, if pharmacists did get involved in that, how much would that change the landscape? So what we found was even if a small number of pharmacies, so we had a 5% of pharmacies kind of served as as extenders for some of these opioid treatment programs, it would actually effectively double the number of 
opioid treatment program sites, if you kind of wow. think about if, and that was, you know, that's just one in 20. Mm-hmm. And so those efforts really resonated. And I think that's what you, what you just mentioned with that White House, uh, that White House effort. And that was preceded by a National Academy of Sciences engineering medicine effort called, eventually re- resulted in a consensus study called Medications for Opioid Use Disorders Save Lives. These were efforts that kind of coalesced around the same time. Wow. So you definitely, this is your arena. Like you have so much going on with your research and, and all different aspects of this. It's fascinating. What would you say the biggest challenge you face in this arena has been and, and how do you approach it? There are several, but the, the big one certainly is is the lack of current data. A lot of times this information, a lot of times you'll get this data sometimes years late. So I, I know that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has been trying to speed up, and I think they've been successful largely in improving the ability of recent data. But typically you had to wait at least a year to get to find out what the statistics were, what were some of the numbers. And that makes it difficult to basically see how initiatives are, how effective they are, because you always have been looking too far back. And it's also sometimes makes it difficult to take bold initiatives, knowing that you might have to wait a while. So I think the getting more current data, also getting more reliable data, there's a tendency for some of these things to to be a little bit messy when when it's diagnosed or coded. Try to determine what are the what are the good indicators of both harm and benefit. I think those are several, and again, I think uh, those are those are starting to improve. But particularly with some of the bold initiatives that are being done right now at the federal level, but but it's been a long time coming, and so I think that uh, that's certainly going to be something that we need to get better coordinated. When I mentioned coordination, I think also just coordination in in care, mm-hmm. so making sure that folks that when we identify that there is an overdose, that we're more quickly able to harmonize them with a care provider that can help them with getting treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's been discussed for quite a while that even with, with medications like buprenorphine, which are available at pharmacies, there's mm-hmm. been challenges sometimes in ensuring that they carry them, that those pharmacies that are providing a high level of care, they're not flagged by the DEA. And we'll probably get to that in a little bit, but the just recently removal of the, the data X waiver which is a huge step in, in terms of potentially improving the number of providers that can prescribe buprenorphine as well as the number of patients, consequently, that are going to be treated. But even with that, there, there still remains making sure that it is available at pharmacies, particularly in underserved areas, and that it's reimbursed appropriately so that yeah. uh, there's pharmacies that are interested, but making sure that that they're covered effectively so that uh, they can provide this care and, and stay in business. Yeah. Wow. You're a wealth of information. I just want to hear everything you have to say. What, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> what is one piece of advice you'd give to somebody starting out in this area of research? They probably entered it because they were hopeful about what can be done to improve it. And, and I really do have to say it, it, it is dire. I think in the, the latest statistics where for the first time since I think 1995 or 1996, I, I need to confirm that, but the life expectancy in the United States is below 77 years. So for the past four years, life expectancy has shortened. That is not something we, we can have continue. And, and certainly COVID was responsible for that. But also deaths of despair due to things like overdoses. And most of the overdose deaths were attributable to opioids. And most of those opioid deaths were attributable to fentanyl. So this is something where it is now having a, a massive impact on, on life expectancy in the United States. And that's that's something we need to, to work on. So... Yeah. To, 
identifying folks that I think was really important in a lot of these efforts is we always spoke with people with lived experience and find out that many of these people are, you know, they, they were normal people just like anybody else. You know, they suffered from a, this is effectively a, a brain disorder that gets exacerbated when they would prescribe these medications. And oftentimes there isn't available help for them. And we've seen that folks can have successful lives when they receive treatment, when they're on the right medications. So to make sure that we get resources to assist them, but it's, I think it's not going to be a straight line of success. It's, it's, there's going to be challenges in this arena. There's going to be folks that kind of take backward steps and, and we're still really trying to get a handle on making sure that we got appropriate care, but vastly too many of these human beings face stigma and we've got to find better ways to kind of get around some of that. So really keeping kind of a hopeful eye Mm -hmm. and knowing that there's certainly going to be some, some challenges in this, this area of research and setbacks, but there is definitely plenty of individuals that are behind behind those efforts, mm. and that um, yeah, I, I don't know. Sometimes it uh, you feel like you're just kind of going backwards when you look at some of the the aggregate data, but then you will you know when you reach individuals that have kind of come out of this chasm of uh, opioid disorder and, and are living important lives or you're are able to work productively, you certainly see that they're it's worth the effort. Mm -hmm. And then I would say we turn the tide, but I I would say that there's certainly things that there's more momentum to improve this than we've, than we've seen in a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of coalition of the willing and interest from at the national level, from Congress to the white house, Mm -hmm. I think that that's something to really, to really be excited about. Yeah. Wow. Well, the work you're doing is so important. Thank you for for putting this out there. And I appreciate it. Yeah. What underrated tools are, are indispensable to your job? Is there, or what tools do you use on a daily basis that could help other senior care pharmacists? Is there anything that comes to mind? I think more tools, it's almost like mindset. I think mm-hmm. uh, it almost relates to what I was talking about. It's, yeah. it's almost like a healthy skepticism of, of conventional wisdom or traditional approaches, or that, you know, this is just who it is, or again, kind of falling back into stigmatization of these patients or people that are trying to help them sometimes, I almost think. Yeah. I would just think that, uh, you know, pharmacists wouldn't be in clinics. We wouldn't be giving all these life, these life-saving vaccines. I think that I saw a recent paper that said more than 50% of the, of the vaccines might, for COVID might have been given by pharmacists by, yeah. by one analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, and you think about it, 30 years ago, there wasn't even training programs for pharmacists and community settings to be giving vaccines. So mm-hmm. what is now just makes so much sense was once questioned. And so that same framework, it's just, um, hey, if, if we can make this positive difference, why don't we attempt it? Even if it is, if it hasn't been, or there's been some speed bumps along the way, it doesn't mean that it's not viable if it, if it really can, can help us progress. So having that, I think that approach, yeah. that mindset, I think is useful. Yeah, perspective is so powerful. Yeah. What I know we're getting towards the end of our time here, but sure. what is one question that you wish I'd asked you and, and how would you have answered it? I think I have two. So there's, I think one I was thinking is, has there been anything useful that's occurred? And I think the one that's really been amazing is that the data wavering, the Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000, so that X waiver that uh, yeah. you had to have in order to prescribe buprenorphine, that has been now repealed, that X waiver as part of the mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act, the MAT Act, mm-hmm. it was just recently passed. Yeah. So just the, the availability, the potential availability of using buprenorphine for these patients is, has exponentially grown. 
And and the other one is is prospects for the field of pharmacy as a whole. I, I think that I just was part of a, a paper that was published with investigators here at, at UCI, Jan Hirsch, Megan Wynn, and uh, Jamila Abugazia, that looked and saw that the, the number of working pharmacists is actually likely quite a bit larger than what you see in, in many of the kind of established national estimates mm-hmm. when you account for those that are working in non-traditional practices. Mm-hmm. And consequently, the demand and opportunities for pharmacists are, are larger, likely than we commonly think. And that those non-traditional sectors, you know, Kelly, you're playing a role in an important one, <laughs> you know, that the, these, these non-traditional sectors for pharmacists are growing. And so there's, there continues to be opportunities where I think the genie's out of the bottle in terms of knowing what pharmacists can do. We learned that in the pandemic as, as being maybe the only provider that you could easily access. Yeah. And, and that, that knowledge and approach is useful in so many different arenas. And those arenas, more people are being pulled into those arenas. So I think that, A, the quantification of that, we probably need to do better, but also just know that, hey, there, you know, if you come into pharmacy with a passion and this knowledge to help older adults or, or, or others, that there is a place for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I hope that our listeners who are, who are students out there really, really take that to heart. <laughs> Speaking of, you know, non-traditional roles, you had such an interesting career as a pharmacist. What would you say the most important lesson is that you've learned over your career so far? I think for me, it's been to be bold and constantly engaging with others, really just try to forge human connections and look, really look for opportunities and not, and not just kind of in the traditional places where there's a posting and then you apply, but, but really just try to forge connections and, and break out of silos to find out where, okay, well, there, there's this person that's, that has an interesting story. That in itself is interesting, but that might relate to something I can do as a pharmacist and kind of allow that serendipity to occur. Mm-hmm. I think that it's it's one of where the more times you interface with with others and forge those those connections and collaborations, it it just allows almost it allows luck to work, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and mostly it's it's yeah, I think mostly it's about it's about attempts. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's kind of how I've that I that's what seems to have worked for me. Yeah. That, that success doesn't come in always the places you expect it. Yeah. It comes because you were there, you, you know, you, you, you interfaced. Yeah. So I think that that that's something that uh, I hope I continue to do. And, and I hope that's what others would try to at least students try to mimic because yeah. they're never going to find out that never more than now, how valued their knowledge and skill set is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I, I think we're at this, this point where pharmacy that, you know, our profession as a whole is really changing. And we have this opportunity to kind of really break out of the silos, like you said, and kind of rewrite exactly, you know, all we can do. I think nurses have been really good at doing that, at breaking out of silos. And, and it's really exciting to see our profession kind of following along and, and, and now doing that as well. I love that. That's a great point. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. I think we've got a, a ton to learn for to just how flexible and innovative the nursing profession has been. Mm-hmm. And, and pivotal. And as you mentioned, I think pharmacy has very many also these, these unique skill sets that can also apply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love that quote you said. I'm going to take this one away with me today. Success doesn't always come in the places you expect it. That's, that's a great quote. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So where can listeners find you online? I do have a, a Twitter is Dr. John Watanabe, D-R-J-O-N-W-A-T-A-N-A-B-E. 
That's my Twitter handle. And then um, on LinkedIn, Jonathan, I think Jonathan H. Watanabe, the pharmacist. All right. The last question I always like to ask, if funding wasn't an issue, what study would you like to do in the future? Medical debt is, is the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. So that's really what I got into. I really have a passion for making care more affordable. So it definitely relate to approaches to decrease medication costs or, or find more cost-effective solutions. So yeah, identify ways that we could make it less expensive or utilize medications in a less expensive way and try to identify how we can systems-based solutions to that. So not sure if I exactly have a study in mind, but yeah. I, I know that would relate to how we can try to to do that for for so many. It, it's it literally it's 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 to the point where it's just not it's not even just the the low income mm-hmm. that have to think about this, but but even the middle class and sometimes even the upper middle class. So, so really trying to find ways to be more efficient. Yeah, yeah, I love that. All right, well, listeners, you've heard this. Maybe we have some type of multi-site study in your future. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great for me. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you, Dr. Watanabe. And thank you for your time today and for contributing to the literature. You know, this is how we're going to drive change. I'm your host, Kelly Ulin, And today we got to speak with Dr. Watanabe, the author of the February 2023 feature article in the Senior Care Pharmacist Journal. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Ulin. Thank you. You're listening to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast, ASCP's journal come to life. Visit ASCP.com slash journal to read the articles and ASCP.com slash podcasts to listen to more author interviews.